Welcome to the first of our podcasts. Uh, my name is Richard Flower from the University of Exeter and my first interviewee today is going to be Professor Tim Whitmarsh of the University of Cambridge who is A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture and a Fellow of St John's College. Good morning. Morning Richard. Morning everyone. <laughs> It's it's very nice to see you, Tim. Um, And today, for our conversation, we're going to be getting into the subject of the idea of belief in the ancient world. So how much would our concepts of religious belief and indeed also of lack of belief of atheism be ones that actually were present or would be comprehensible to people living in the Greek and Roman worlds. So if we can start actually with with that question, um, how much do you think belief is something that was a concern within religious activity or religious practices in antiquity? Well, I think it depends really what you mean. We have to make some distinctions here, okay? So on the one hand, if any form of ritual activity, any form of religious activity has a dimension of commitment to it, a dimension of assent, if you like. So when you go to uh, sacrifice or even go to attendance sacrifice or whatever, you are implicitly assenting to belief that something works there. Okay, so it's not as if the ancients are going around um, simply uh, concerned with the practice of actions. It does actually really matter that people are committing to what we might call the, the belief in the efficacy of these actions. On the other hand, uh, ancients in general don't define themselves as faith communities in that modern sense. So if if you talk about who are the believers, for example, in, in um, second, third, fourth centuries AD, uh, those Greek, it's only really the Christians, Jews to a sort of small extent, but it's only really Christians that define themselves using the word belief. Belief becomes a, if you like, a kind of um, slogan of, for the Christian community in later antiquity. Um, there are one or two communities that define themselves in terms of belief earlier on. So, for example, um, there's the uh, there's an amazing text which we call the Devaney Papyrus, which is found near Thessaloniki, uh, a small town called Devaney, hence its name, um, which is from the late fifth century BC, uh, and it's an, uh, it's a text which is a commentary on a, a on a mystical poem. And that does use the term uh, believers, or at least it uses the terms disbelievers. It says that uh, people that aren't part of our community are the disbelievers. And they so, I mean, it was possible in antiquity to make this distinction between the faith group and the non-faith group. But in general, that's only a, a category that becomes big and operative under Christianity. Okay, so would you say that essentially there are not really many people within the the pre-christian ancient world who would fall in, into this category of disbelievers i mean do you, do you feel that this is this is not a category that was that was widely employed or that there's many people who might sort of self-identify we, we might say as being a disbeliever or or as an atheist or as challenging the community's view of of the divine Okay, two things there. I think one is that um, Greco-Roman polytheism, if you like, whatever term we want to use <laughs> describing what was not Christian in yes. <laughs> Greco-Roman polytheism is not a systematic theological structure. Okay, so that's to say we don't have sacred texts, we don't have orthodox concepts of belief in that that's a very Christian approach to things. Um, and as a result, defining who is 
a heretic, a disbeliever, an atheist, and so forth, becomes extremely difficult because if you have a very sort of plural concept of what it is to commit to an idea of, of you know, belief in, in, in the gods, um, if there are many different ways of doing that, then all, um, all kind of colours and stripes, as it were, of um, belief in the, in, in, in the gods uh, are permissible in that. So I think, I mean, within that broad category of, uh, you know, the number of different ways in which people could imagine themselves assenting to um, the religious structure. Actually, there were positions that came close to uh, atheism, and they weren't as uncommon as people like to suggest. And there are times when they really flare up and they become very visible. So the late 5th century Athens, for example, where we know of a number of people who were, uh, the Greek phrase used is surnamed the atheist, hot atheos. Um, okay. the, 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 the word that we uh, use now for, for disbeliever, atheist, actually comes into existence in this time. Um, previously, it had meant atheos had meant um, somebody who was um, abandoned by the gods. Okay. Uh, but it comes to mean someone who has a philosophical commitment to a position that there are no gods. And as I say, at times like that, they, you know, you get a sense that actually there were quite a lot of people who were thinking in this, um, if you like, sort of philosophically detached way, and they were saying um, the category of God is not one that I want to commit to, and that there are philosophical arguments against the possibility of the existence of gods, and we can mobilise these. And as I say, I think um, uh, you can see at various moments in antiquity um, between the 5th century and probably the 2nd century AD, those, that's the kind of the high period. You can see moments where it really does flare up and there actually are, um, it's hard to talk about communities because it's not, it's a, it's a community def defined on absence, if you like, but there are certainly people that band together and believe themselves to be united by a philosophical commitment to the non-existence of God. And in what sort of context do we get the use of, of this this title for such people, of, of atheos, then? Is it a term that is being applied to them by their enemies, or is it one that people would actually apply to themselves? Now, that is really the critical question. In the 5th century, it's very hard to know. I think you can make... I mean, clearly the word atheos means... The, the, the Greek word means a absence of theos, Okay, so it's a negative term, it's a term that means um, I am marking somebody out by their distance from the norm. The norm is that we believe in gods, then Athios is somebody who doesn't belong. And Athens actually, I mean exceptionally in the ancient world, Athens has seems to have legislation from about 432 onwards against people that don't believe in the existence of gods. So for Athens it's a particularly problematic um, uh, question, this one. I suspect that, to my own reconstruction of it, is that um, the term starts out in a, in a negative sense, that starts out stigmatising people who lack this belief in the gods, but then is reclaimed by various people. And I think there's, a, in particular, there's a guy called Diagoras of Milos um, in the 420s who seems to have spun things around and said, actually, no, I am an atheos and I'm quite happy to be called that. Um, so, but that's, as I say, that's all speculative reconstruction. Then what you get later on is in the Hellenistic period, so uh, 3rd century onwards, 3rd century to about 1st century BC, um, you do get people, philosophers, who are interested in, if you like, the archaeology of ancient atheistic beliefs. So philosophers compiling compendia of how you argue for the disbelief in God. And I think it's in that period that the term never quite loses its negativity, but um, there do seem to have been people who are take an active interest in compiling arguments against the um, existence of gods 
And I think by the first, second centuries AD, you were beginning then to see people who are positively identifying as atheos, and that's a really interesting development. Mm, so you were saying this is particular moments um, across the ancient world where this idea flares up or appears to, to flare up as far as we can tell. Would you want to link this to a particular social, cultural, political context, or do you think it's in some ways a, an artefact of our surviving material? Um, uh, the second must be right, at one level. Um, we don't know as much as we'd like to about many of the key figures. So I mentioned this guy, Diagoras of Milos, who is probably not a household name, but um, for, in antiquity, if you'd said who is the, the most famous atheist, most people would have said Diagoras of Milos. Unfortunately, we know next to nothing about him. Okay, So we are hampered by sources as ever. As I say, I think that you can do an awful lot of reconstructive work, but it has to be speculative. But no, the, as you, that, the question that you asked there is absolutely... Uh, another very critical question. So what is the relationship between socio-political forces and um, religious concepts of atheism, that's mm. to say? Um, and my answer here, looking at a thousand years of history of uh, atheism, I think that whatever else religion is, it is also an allegory of power. Religion helps people to understand the political, socio-political communities that they're in. And I think putting it very crudely, there's a distinction between a polytheist worldview and a monotheist worldview. And that is, as I say, an immensely crude distinction because there's never been a pure monotheism. Yes. We always say this, you know, that there are demons and angels and so forth. And there's never been a pure polytheism because there's always a top god and so yes. forth. So actually we're talking about positions on the spectrum. But broadly speaking, a polytheistic worldview is very congenial to a world in which you've got multiple dispersed centres of power, like, for example, Archaic Greece. There's no capital of Archaic Greece. There's no you know, Greek mm -hmm. empire holding it all together. You've got multiple different city-states. How do they bond together? They bond together because they, they say all our gods can interact with each other in a single loose conceptual system. And that's, broadly speaking, polytheism. That's also yeah. the world of... Um, uh, Mesopotamia and you know in a slightly different way e Egypt as well polytheism operates because um, you've got multiple dispersed centres of religious power that need to cooperate in some sort of way monotheism on the other hand is best suited to strongly centralised imperial structures so part of the explanation why we go from a polytheist world to a monotheist world in late antiquity is because you've actually got um, a Roman Empire that actually has levers that it can pull to control or try to control um, a, it's again complex, fragmented and, you know, I mean, uh, uh, it's not as unified as people actually want it to be, yes. but, um, but trying to hold things together uh, politically and religiously is part of what's going on here. Now that was a very sort of you know, long way around of, of answering your question, but I do think that, that this anxiety with atheism, um, when societies become anxious about atheism, that's um, when they're more sort of tending towards the imperial monotheistic worldview. Um, so Athens becomes anxious about atheism at a time when it's commanding an empire, when it's trying to hold together both its own city-state, which is now the largest state in uh, the Mediterranean, um, but also the sort of vast hinterland of, of um, um, imperial interests that it's kind of controlling. And it's at that point that they start thinking... You know, help, how do we 
construct a coherent worldview out of this imperial uh, mentality. Um, and that's when they start worrying about trying to create something. It's not quite orthodoxy, but trying to police the boundaries between right belief and wrong belief. It's a very sort of small pre-echo of the kind of thing that goes on in late antiquity, but um, it is a pre-echo, I think. So you, you would almost say that, that actually what, what is emerging there in, in late 5th century Athens is, is not so much the idea of atheism, but more a concern about the idea of atheism, though I suppose the latter could be said to, to construct the, the former in some way. So, I mean, there is sometimes people have in the past constructed a rather crude separation again here between Greco-Roman polytheism or whatever term we use and um, well, particularly uh, Christianity coming after it between the idea that Christianity is more concerned with orthodoxy yeah. so having correct or right belief and that Greco-Roman paganism is more concerned with orthopraxy yeah. so the correct behaviour the correct performance of religious ritual now this can be challenged in various ways obviously to say there is quite a lot of a concern about doing rituals correctly yeah, yeah. within Christianity as well but you you would, you would say there's also some element of what you might term orthodoxy there present within some of these polytheistic practices as well, or, or perhaps within societies that contain those practices. Um, I think that broad characterisation that you gave is, is, must be absolutely right, that um, everything changes in the late 4th century uh, AD when you get the, the, the Theodosian Code is an absolutely extraordinary thing. The last book, 16 books, absolutely a massive thing, 16th book is all about right belief. It's not just about um, um, we impose Christianity on the empire. It's imposing the right kind of Christianity. It's got to be Nicene Catholic Christianity. And the heretics are even worse than you know Jews and pagans and that sort of thing. The heretics are the real enemies there. So it is about boring into the souls of the individual subjects of the empire and saying you must check your beliefs and work out that you... There's nothing like that in the Greco-Roman polytheism at all. But we do have, nevertheless, um, one of the fault lines in Greco-Roman polytheism does seem to be between um, belief and non-belief in the gods. And that does, as I say, that flares up in late 4th century, uh, late 5th century Athens for, as I say, a particular set of reasons that are, are I mean, I'm, I've given you one reconstruction of it that has all to do with managing an empire and holding things together and trying to create a community which is more than a face-to-face -face community and you know, that seems to me to work plausibly but it's a reconstruction you know, so I, I, I don't know particularly why that happened. Um, so yes, there are these moments where Greco-Roman polytheism worries about the boundary between the believers and the disbelievers but I think I'd throw one other thing into that and I think it's a more, it's a, it's a less um, negative picture if you like. I mean what the picture I've been painting is rather of um, uh, of an ancient world that was dominated by people who were anxious about power. But I think one of the more positive things about Greco-Roman antiquity is that they have a firm separation between priesthood and intellectual life. Okay, So um, priests don't actually control very much in Greco-Roman polytheism. Mm -hmm. You have nothing like that sort of Theodosian situation where um, the Emperor Theodosius is actually... Um, um, the guardian of theology, if yes. you like. I mean, in general, uh, Greco-Roman antiquity priests have very little power. They're in charge of the finances of their temples. They're in charge of making sure that the sacrifices are done in proper ways. But actually, the priest, these priests, they're not even specialists themselves. They're usually either... Um, they, you know, the priesthood is something hereditary given to them, and they're actually, most of the time, 
doing off, you know, going off being a general or something, mm-hmm. or with their sort of short-term priesthoods that, again, can be combined with other kinds of activities. So priests, it's not a calling, it's not a sort of um, spiritual role and so forth. And your, your, your job as a priest is simply, as I say, confined to temporal practice. And this means that the people that are making the real running in terms of ideas of belief and gods and so forth are different categories of people. They're intellectuals and they're, in particular, philosophers. So whereas most people in the modern world, I think, think of um, religion as combining two activities. One is uh, the clergy and the ritual and so forth, and the other is um, belief and spiritual activity mm-hmm. and so forth. In Greco-Roman polytheism, these two areas are separated out. So the people, as I say, who are doing most of the thinking about the nature of divinity are... Um, the, that role is parceled off to certain specialists, certain intellectual specialists in uh, society, and as a result, you get the sense that um, that uh, there is a much more exploratory, open-ended approach to uh, questions about the cosmos, about God, about mortality and and spirituality, and so forth. Because people are looking at it not from the point of view of protecting church interests, as it were, yes. but they're looking at it from more more from this open-ended. Um, you know, how do what, how robust are these arguments about the nature mm-hmm. of the soul? How robust are these arguments about the nature? Of it's weird to think about about philosophers there acting separately, you might say, to those who are in charge of the rituals within yeah. a, a temple precinct. Then, if we're thinking about someone who is being defined as being an atheist, is this primarily about non-participation, or is this about philosophical speculation about the existence of the gods? I mean, famously, in the Roman world, we have Christians being referred to as atheists, you know, the term that is employed against them, because they are, they are not worshippers of the traditional Roman gods in this way. Do you think that we can separate out this idea of non-participation and non-belief? Do you think we have people who are doing one of these and, and not the other? Um, I think most of the time in, in Greco-Roman polytheism, pre-Christian antiquity, whatever we want to call it, uh, when people say atheist, they mean someone who doesn't believe in mm-hmm. the gods. Um, you get atheists who say you should practice and you should um, take part in your civic rituals. Um, because that is most philosophical structures in antiquity are designed to lead to the good life to to what the Greeks called eudaimonia, Mm -hmm. happiness in general Um, and you can't be happy if you're not part of your community so there is one um, if you like sort of Faustian pact which goes um, don't believe in the gods because the gods um, there's no rational reason for believing in the gods but you must believe in the collective values of the city because you can't have any happiness without participation in the wider structures of the city. So I do think no, I do think that um, atheist in classical antiquity pretty much entirely means it, it is a question of belief there. But one thing I would come back to you on is this question of whether the Christians were called atheists mm-hmm. because actually all of that evidence comes from Christian sources. And I think the Christians do something cookie with the idea of atheist. Um, they, um, and actually, you first see it in Jewish sources, um, Philo of Alexandria in the first century AD, but the Christians pick it up very quickly, and they change the meaning of the word um, atheos from somebody who doesn't believe in the concept of God mm-hmm. to someone who doesn't believe in the Christian God. And all of these stories, the Christian stories about Christians being accused of atheists, they're all designed 
to flip things around. They all, okay. all have a kind of um, a little kick in the mm -hmm. So the famous one is the martyrdom of Polycarp. Yes. So um, he's arraigned before the governor of Smyrna mm -hmm. or whatever, and this, uh, the governor says, um, renounce your uh, Christianity and say, uh, down with the atheists. And Polycarp waves his fist at the audience <laughs> and says, down with the atheist, of obviously flipping it around and yes. turning the accusation of atheism back on the audience. So I don't think that's evidence that Christians were called atheists. I think that's evidence that Christians wanted to throw the accusation <laughs> of atheist against polytheists mm. because, um, as I say, they're engaged in a large-scale program of redefining the nature of God and community and so forth, and they're co-opting this language of atheism um, as a kind of universally negative kind of thing, mm -hmm. which they will then use to mark the difference between themselves and other forms of religiosity. Mm, so you think because this is coming from the Christian polemic, we can't we can't ever really reconstruct any polytheist, pagan, however you want to term it, attitude there. Actually, and it's it's it's, it's yeah, not turning yeah. up in the, the admittedly you know fairly scanty evidence we actually have of um, attitudes towards Christianity coming from non non Christian sources in in the early period. Well, of that's Christianity. Yeah, that's one of the really interesting things, isn't it? That um, actually until the mid third century or so. Christianity is almost invisible yeah. in Greco-Roman uh, polytheism. Now, if you only read Christian sources, you get this sense that right from the very start, um, Greeks and Romans are absolutely paranoid by this new cult and it's sort of spread like wildfire through everything and that there's this great anxiety about Christians everywhere and they're sort of very subversive and they're not doing the things that they should do. But if you look at it from the other point of view, from the Greco-Roman sources, there's almost no mention of Christians at all. So uh, there are two ways of looking at that. One, you could say you know, the evidence isn't, isn't particularly strong and so forth, and that is true, that you know, it would be nice to have a, a wider sense of the evidence. Um, but you could also say that in later antiquity, after the conversion of Constantine, is it a conversion? Well, you know, well, after Constantine and after Theodosius and so forth, the Christians um, engage in a large-scale rewriting of their pre-Constantinian mm -hmm past and they in order to shore up their um, sense of if you like their difference from traditional Greco-Roman culture they tell the story they retell the story in terms of of persecution mm -hmm. and martyrdom and so forth I mean this is well oh yes the, 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 the idea of, of the great battle between paganism yeah, and Christianity right. which allows for a narrative of triumph and we that's see right, this yeah. coming through partly in the 4th century but especially then in, in the 5th century with the great ecclesiastical historians right, yes, of, the, yeah. of that period so I don't need to tell you <laughs> well thank you very much for that I would now like for the final part of the interview possible to, to move on to ask you a couple of little little questions I suppose about, about your own kind of personal engagement with, with the ancient world and to play about a bit with, with counterfactual history. And the, the first thing I want to ask is, if you, if you had a time machine and you were able to go back to any point in the ancient world and witness one thing or, or one event or one site or one person, anything along these lines, not, not change anything, not interact, just, just see something or someone, what would it be? What would you like to go and see? Well, this is a big ask, isn't it? Um, so my answer today, and it will probably change on a different day of the week, my answer today is I'd like to see the view from the Theatre of Dionysus in the late 5th century BC. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say this is because, at the moment, one of the things I've been thinking about is 
uh, why people fly in the ancient theatre. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's partly to do with the fact that most people in antiquity lived on the flats, in the plain, mm. didn't go out of the city very much, and they lived in single-storey buildings and so forth. Um, and going up onto the Acropolis and seeing this absolutely amazing view, still absolutely sensational view from the Acropolis mm-hmm. for miles around, um, must have felt as if they were raising themselves out of the normal plane of humanity mm-hmm. and seeing the world rather like gods do. Um, now, in Greco-Roman antiquity, gods can fly. Often in Homer, they need sort of special implements, they need sort of special sandals or special chariots, sort of, but they do fly. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm really interested in this idea of aerial elevation and what it actually means. And um, I just love the idea that when you go to the theatre of Dionysus, you actually see flying. You see, mm. people, you know, this this crane thing, the mechanism. Yeah. Uh, gods fly in using it, and I do think there's something that would be. I'd love to experience that sense of elevation and vistas opening up that mm-hmm. must have given ancient audiences a perception that they were participating in something like a divine. Uh, uh, perspective on the world. And you think that, therefore, part of the experience of these Athenians in, in going to the theatre is going into a, a different environment that they don't normally inhabit. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah, part yeah. of you know, they're not normally spending time up on the Acropolis, so there they can actually go, go and, and it's almost that they're entering a different, as you say, almost religious space in, well, in doing that. Yeah, if you look at uh, the description of the homes of the gods in uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, it's, of course, on Olympus, the tallest mountain in Greece, nearly 3,000 metres high, um, the peak of which was not scaled till the 20th century. And the gods up there, what do they do? They sit there and they survey. That's what they mm-hmm. do. And I think that ancient Athenian audiences going up the Acropolis would have felt that they were not quite entering the domain of the gods, but they were sharing in that sense of a, you know, having that... Um, something and experience something like homeless mm-hmm. gods, and in a sense, not just of, of looking down upon the earth, but also of looking down upon humanity. Yeah, the important exactly, thing yeah. of going up to a high space that's within an urban area yeah. is you get to look down on other people. Something obviously you know, that we we being much more familiar with flight, um, right? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, are, are are now quite used to, and something there that would be really out out of the ordinary yeah. for people in the ancient world. I mean, we quite easy for us for us to forget how strange it would be to look down. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, on, exactly. on humanity yeah. in this way for people yeah, there. That's right. Yeah. Um, the second question I want to ask you then is, is also about your engagement in the ancient world and to say now, if you were to actually change one thing about any aspect of the, of, of the ancient world, any particular period, the Greeks or the Romans or whatever you would choose, um, what would it be? And you, you can change a single moment. You can stop the assassination of Caesar. Or you could change something completely structural about the whole way in which Roman society worked or, or Athenian society or anything on those lines, what would you want to be different about the ancient world? Well, there's so many cautionary stories about this, aren't there? <laughs> exactly. Stephen Fry is uh, making history about the assassination of, mm. of uh, Hitler and that sort of thing. Um, so what, what, my, my answer to this question would be, I think, um, not um, what I would like to change, but it would be, um, I would like to see, I would like to know what would have happened if things had been slightly different. And one of these, one of the areas would be um, if Athens had won the Peloponnesian War mm-hmm. in the 5th century, what would have happened then? Because, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the, the, the main part of the interview, uh, Athens was a an imperial state, and if Athens had become, if you like, the sort of the what Macedon became later, the, the, the dominant power in Greece, with a control of the sea mm-hmm. as well as a control of the land, which, because Athens had control of the sea at the time, I suspect... Um, classical antiquity would have turned out extremely differently 
and all of these proto um, uh, pro proto theocratic strains mm -hmm. that we were talking about. So you know this concern to police belief um, that you see in uh, late fifth century Athens intermittently and um, inconsistently. Maybe those would have solidified, and maybe you would have got something much more like the later Roman Empire developing already in the fourth century, and that would have been really interesting to. It would be really interesting to know whether, you know, if you ran, ran a computer simulation mm. program, whether <laughs> things would... would yes, I, I do. I wonder how much things things would have changed there. I mean, let, let's imagine not, not just that, that Athens did defeat Sparta and, and her allies there in, in the late 5th century, but also, I suppose, for a key moment in the Peloponnesian War, let's imagine that the Sicilian campaign had been a success right, yes, as, exactly, yeah. as well um, about 10 years earlier. How, so how do you think things would have... Yes. Well, yeah, sure. do, do you think things would have would have gone very differently, not just as you say for for Greek history there, but also I suppose I'm thinking now about about the history of Italy and the history of Rome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, the uh, talking very crude <laughs> terms again. I think the nature of counterfactuals. <laughs> um, I think what changed between the second millennium and the first millennium BC um, is the possibility of transmarine shipping across the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. which converted the Mediterranean itself into a kind of game board. So previously, most trade had been done inland or around the coast, but now it was really important to be able to trade the length and the breadth of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. What this meant was that um, control, as in with the game of chess or whatever, control of the centre becomes absolutely critical. So that's kind of part of the reason why Greece and Rome um, actually become... Uh, major major mm -hmm. players, major powers, is because they, they are automatically in that sort of advanced pawn position in the centre of the board. It's geographical as much as anything else. Um, so if Athens had actually got control of Sicily, which is, you know, Sicily really is yeah. the central uh, position of the Mediterranean chessboard um, in the late 5th century, then who knows, yeah. Um, those wealthy silver mines in Spain, yeah. um, the tin over there and so forth, um, they'd actually control the route between um, the the mineral uh, wealth in the West and the um, creative uh, uh, kind of um, uh, resources of the East, and they'd actually be in control of that. So rather rather, rather than the Phoenicians, um, who had been um, dominant in North Africa yeah. and parts of Sicily, uh, if they'd actually sort of wiped out all of those and actually got control of the centre of the, the playing board, then, yeah, I think the whole of Mediterranean history would have been very different. Mm. Thank you very much for your answers to those questions and to your other questions. Thank you, those of you who have been listening. Um, now time to sign off on the first of these podcasts. But just before I go, to thank once again Professor Tim Whitmarsh for giving us a very interesting insight into aspects of the ancient world and aspects of the ancient world that never did come about either in our, our final questions. And thank you all for listening and goodbye.